Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis. I am Donald Meisel, minister with my colleagues to and with this Center City congregation. I sometimes wish there were a different way to say that or a better one, but that's, that's the fact of the matter. We want you in the radio audience to know that these forums take place in the main sanctuary of this church at the corner of Nicollet Mall and 12th Street, one Thursday noon a month, September through April, that they are free and open to the public, that you are invited to attend both the half-hour address and to remain for the half-hour question period. The five years that we've been presenting these forums as a public service, the overarching theme has been and remains voices of conscience, key issues in ethical perspective. It strikes me, and I trust that it strikes you, that that thrust juxtaposes very nicely with today's topic, the mission of the church and the temporal order. Our speaker today is Archbishop John Roach, who has been head of the Archdiocese of St. Paul in Minneapolis since 1975. He comes uniquely qualified to address his chosen theme, his having been president of the National Conference of Catholic Bishops at the time that a committee by his appointment generated the much-discussed pastoral letter on war and peace. And now we have the first draft of the pastoral letter on Catholic social teaching and the U.S. economy, with which study he is also intimately versed. Given his topic, the mission of the church and the temporal order, we can assume we will be hearing from him about both of these important documents. Whatever else he brings to us, Archbishop Roach is a dedicated ecumenist. Reformation Sunday, 1981, as case in point, found him preaching to over 3,000 people two blocks from here from the pulpit of Central Lutheran Church, the largest American Lutheran congregation. And the tradition continues, I understand, between Central Lutheran and the St. Paul Cathedral. We have all come a long way, have we not? Tomorrow marks the onset of the annual observance in Protestant, Roman Catholic, and Orthodox circles of the week of prayer for Christian unity. What could be more appropriate or more fortuitous than to have our guest speaking from this pulpit today? Welcome, Archbishop Roach. Thank you very much, Dr. Meisel. Well, my friends, I am deeply grateful to be invited to participate in this Westminster Town Hall Forum. I've been acquainted with it for these past four years and regard it as a very significant contribution to the life of this community and the ingenuity and creativity of Dr. Meisel and his associates and the support of you people in this congregation is 
something that I admire and inspect uh, envy. My topic today is an attempt to place the church in an appropriate role as the church addresses its responsibility in helping a society set its own priorities and goals. Even a casual observer of the scene will recognize that the issue is not purely academic as we look back on the very visible role of religion in the political process prior to last November's election. Two weeks before that election, Time magazine said, first Walter Mondale and then Ronald Reagan trooped to the podium to speak on the hottest issue to develop so far in this political campaign. Not war or taxes or the deficit, but rather the proper relationship between politics and religion. Now, I think that there were some excesses in that dialogue between religion and politics, but I regard it as healthy that you and I live in an age which is coming more and more to recognize that absence of dialogue about and between religion and politics serves neither the church nor the state. Three years ago, in an address which I gave as president of the National Conference of Catholic Bishops, I addressed the same question, and I'm satisfied that since that time, the issue has assumed even greater importance than I had imagined then. To ignore the role of religion in the great debate, which goes on as to what kind of country we would have us be, is to misunderstand the drama and the dynamics of social life today. The American form of the church-state debate has its own historical and cultural character, and it did not begin in the 1980s. In his farewell address, our first president, George Washington, warned as follows. Of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political well-being, religion and morality are inseparable supports. And let us with caution indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion. Whatever may be conceded to the influence of education and minds of peculiar structure, reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principle. It is my hope today that with the election behind us, it will be possible for the nation to address the public role of religion with perhaps less rhetorical passion than was true during the few months prior to November. The specific issues which frame the national argument will return again. But now we have a breathing space in which to examine the theological and constitutional principles which have shaped the discussion of religion, morality, and public affairs. The theological question is the way the church has articulated the content of its social ministry. 
When the United States Catholic Conference addresses Central America or the impact of budget cuts on the poor, when bishops speak on the arms race or on economics, when we as religious people individually or collectively oppose abortion, capital punishment, and defending the sanctity of life, then it must be made clear that these actions are rooted in, directed by, in fulfillment of a theologically grounded conception of the Church's ministry. Now I know that you will excuse me if I speak from my own Roman Catholic perspective. I must do that. It is my impression, however, that virtually all mainline religions would assume pretty much the same theological stance in this area. Our ministry in the socio-political order is shaped by two themes. The first is the religious conviction about the dignity of the human person and the spectrum of obligations and rights through which human dignity is preserved and promoted in the political process. These concepts have been key ideas in the Catholic tradition from the first social encyclical, Leo XIII's On the Condition of Labor, to the current Pope's On Human Work. In the intervening years of the 20th century, each of the social encyclicals has defended the dignity of the person in the face of diverse and changing threats to human dignity and human rights. The moral vision of the social ministry was qualitatively strengthened by a second theme, the ecclesiology of the Second Vatican Council in its document, The Pastoral Constitution on the Church in the Modern World. The decisive contribution of the Pastoral Constitution is the way it defined the protection of human dignity and the promotion of human rights as properly ecclesial tasks, an integral part of the Church's ministry. This marriage of the moral vision and the ecclesial vision provides the basis of the Church's social ministry. In the language of the Vatican Council, the task of the Church in the political order is to stand as the sign and safeguard of the dignity of the person. To fulfill this role in a political context requires that the Church not only teach the moral truths about the person, it must also join in the public debate where policies are shaped, programs developed, and decisions made which directly touch the rights of the person locally, nationally, and internationally. This is precisely what Pope John Paul II was talking about in speaking to American Catholics in his homily at Yankee Stadium on the occasion of his visit to the United States. He said, within the framework of your national institutions and in cooperation with your fellow citizens, you will also want to seek out the structural reasons which foster or cause the different forms of poverty in the world 
and in your own country so that you can help to apply the proper remedies. When the church responds to this theological imperative, then the constitutional question arises. How should it fulfill its social role in the context of the American political tradition? Specifically, can the church play an active role in the political order without violating separation of church and state? In answering that question, it is essential to recognize the distinction between state and society. The Western constitutional tradition embodies the judgment that the state is a part of society and not to be identified with all of society. Beyond the state is a realm of free political activity where individuals and groups act to give content to the fabric of social life. On the basis of this distinction between state and society, a twofold affirmation can be made about the church's role in society. On the one hand, Catholic theology, my own theology, can and should support and defend the separation of church and state. The principle that religious organizations should expect neither favoritism nor discrimination because they are religious. On the other hand, we should not accept or allow the separation of church and state to be used to separate the church from society. To accept this would be to reduce the church or any religious organization to a purely private role. This in turn would prevent the church from fulfilling an essential dimension of its ministry, to preach the gospel truth, about every dimension of existence, personal and social, public and private, and about individual and institutional moral questions. At the constitutional level, there is no conflict between the theological vision which calls the church to active engagement in the social arena and the American political tradition which provides for religious organizations to participate in shaping society, so long as they act in that capacity as voluntary associations imbued with the needed moral and religious vision. The concept of religious divisiveness is not only ill-founded in relation to our constitutional tradition, it is noxious when it is used to inhibit this participation. The theological and constitutional questions shape our understanding of the church's role in society. They set the foundation for engaging the issues which are the heart of social ministry. Assuming some validity to what I have said about the theological and constitutional questions, the further question must be raised about how the church deals with these. The right of religious organizations of varying views to speak must be defended by all who understand the meaning of religious liberty in the social role of religion. But religious organizations 
should be subjected to the same standards of rational, rigorous presentation of their views as any other participant in the public debate. Moreover, religious organizations which address the moral dimensions of public issues must be judged by standards of competent moral analysis. How do we define a moral issue? Are we consistent in our application of moral principles across a broad range of moral issues? As an example, I would defend with vigor the right, for instance, of the moral majority to address the moral issues of our day. I would quarrel with the moral majority that it does not apply a consistency in those kinds of presentations. It is not possible in my mind to be passionate about the question of abortion and cavalier about the question of nuclear war. There must be a moral consistency. We need not be timid about stating and defending public positions, but we must expect our positions to be examined with the same rigorous analysis which we would expect to be applied to others' positions. Further, it is absolutely clear that churches may not take partisan positions. I know that that means walking a fine line at times, but if we must err, it should be on the side of nonpartisanship. We have a right to try to convince others of the rightness of our positions. But our actions will be counterproductive if it is perceived that we endorse political parties or candidates. I agree totally with the statement of Bishop James Malone, current president of the National Conference of Catholic Bishops, who said, we reject the idea that candidates satisfy the requirements of rational analysis in saying their personal views should not influence their political decisions. But I also agree with Bishop Malone when he said in that same statement, it would be regrettable if religion as such were injected into a political campaign through appeals to candidates, religious affiliations, and commitments. Our role in all of this is to be the voice for the moral perspective in political debate. Those of us who visibly represent a religious vision must be very clear about our task. We have a contribution to make in preserving all that is valuable in the life of each person and in the lives of the people who constitute this society. Perhaps the clearest example of the impact of religion on the national debate was in the question of nuclear disarmament. The pastoral letter of the National Conference of Catholic Bishops titled The Challenge of Peace, God's Promise and Our Response, was, I know, the most ambitious attempt by religious groups to address the question. However, almost all religious groups took a moral position on the question, and I think it would be hard to deny that the position of churches did not influence both the public discussion and the policy discussion on the question of war and peace. The important point, I think, to be noted is that the social character of religion's vision and structure 
is recognized by an increasing number of people as not only a valid, but a necessary part of the role of religion. In his 1982 World Day of Peace message, Pope John Paul II said, Peace cannot be built by the power of rulers alone. Rulers must be supported and enlightened by public opinion that encourages them or, where necessary, expresses disapproval. I believe that that is precisely the role of the church in shaping public opinion. Now, I know that it's hardly ever possible to translate public opinion directly into policy positions. But public opinion does set an atmosphere and a framework within which decisions are made. Public opinion establishes some clear demands and it draws some clear lines beyond which de democratically elected leaders move only with great difficulty. Staying with the example of war and peace, for example, I have asked myself frequently how I would demonstrate that the position taken by churches, in fact, has influenced public policy. And my honest answer is that we should not assume that success in this or many other issues can be easily anticipated. But neither the slowness of change nor the complexity of the issue should allow us to be passive or timid. In our case, I think that the bishops of this country understood that the efforts we made in the peace pastoral had to be seen as a long-term commitment. I believe firmly that we did help shape public opinion. And I believe with equal firmness that ultimately public opinion will translate into public policy. That's the way our country works. In our case, as in the case of other major religious groups, our position grew out of a logic of a religious moral vision. We believe in the sanctity of life. We believe in the preservation of God's creation. Finally, I repeat that I at least welcome the renewed attention paid to the public role of religion. I believe that our moral vision has substance, and I believe that the style of our participation in public debate can be respectful and in turn respected. There are great demanding moral challenges which this nation faces, and the role of religion is to try to help guarantee that as we make our choices, we will have reverence for persons, that we will struggle for justice for the poor, and that we will dedicate our lives to peace for the human family. Thank you very much. We take a brief pause to permit those who must leave uh, at this time to do so. Also to create an opportunity for you to pass questions on those yellow cards to the aisles and the ushers will pick them up and bring them forward. Let me simply remind our radio audience 
that uh, you are hearing a program, the, namely the Westminster Town Hall Forum, which emanates from Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis. You have just heard the Most Reverend John R. Roach, Archbishop of the Archdiocese of St. Paul in Minneapolis, addressing very eloquently the theme, the mission of the church and the temporal order. My name is Donald Meisel. I'm minister of this congregation and moderator of the forum. I think, uh, Archbishop Roach, we'll just move right into some questions. I have one or two ready to go just so we don't lose any valuable time. All right, good. Thank you. May I pose to you this question? How do you read the ecumenical situation today? Signs of hope, signs of discouragement. If you, uh, if you compare, let's say, where we are today with where we were 20 years ago, it seems to me it would be very hard to deny at virtually every level that there has been significant, substantial progress in our, in our ecumenical efforts. Probably the greatest success single success has been at the level of scholarship. The scholarly dialogues which have gone on uh, among many, many religious bodies have reached points of not only clarification, but a lot of general agreement. Those have been very valuable. The, at the level of kind of judicial level, let's say the level of judicatories, people who uh, were kind of in leadership position, uh, remarkable things are going on. In this state, uh, the level not only of trust and friendship which exists among uh, the bishops or uh, supervisors or superintendents or whatever they may be of the various churches has been uh, remarkable. A lot of the living room dialogues, which I think were kind of, to my mind, were kind of dying on the vine for a while, I think they're beginning to revive. So I see very positive signs I wish we were farther along than we are, but I also, such things as the Joint Religious Legislative Committee in this state, which is kind of a model for other states, our efforts to unite forces in working for appropriate legislation, that kind of thing, these have been very good things. So I'm, I'm pretty high on the, I think it's done well. Would you give a capsule definition of your understanding of liberation theology and how does its main thrust relate to the two documents put together by the National Conference of Bishops? <laughs> well, I'd rather dance, frankly. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a big one. Yeah, that, that's a tough question. Well, take any well, part of it. Let, let, me, let me see if I... Liberation theology is essentially a theology which has grown out of a kind of a populist sort of approach to theology, basically in the third world, much less so in Africa than would be true in Latin America. What it is, it's an attempt to translate the human experience, the human lived experience of people of faith into theological positions. I think it has enormous validity in that. Where liberation theology, for instance, for the Catholic Church can have some problematics is the fact that the it is more uh, let, me, let me put it this way yeah it is more biblically oriented than it is sacramentally oriented and um, we have nothing against the Bible in spite of the fact we've been accused of that but we, we don't <laughs> we love the Bible but 
I think that we have, we have tried to maintain in our worship that kind of balance of liturgy of word of Christ or word of God and also liturgy of sacrament. And liberation theology has had some little problem with that. That's a terribly inadequate answer, but if I had more time, I could do a little better or a little worse, I'm not sure which. <laughs> I think you did very well. This question, uh, you seem to have become more critical of the Sandinista regime as a result of your most recent visit to Nicaragua. What is responsible for your change in attitude, if in fact that's what has happened? All right. I was asked to um, visit Nicaragua by my successor, the president of the National Conference of Bishops, at the request of the Bishops' Conference of Nicaragua. My mandate was pretty specific. I was to go there to intervene in behalf of 10 priests who had been expelled by the Sandinistas for a kind of a, uh, at least what, what was regarded as a kind of a subver subversion. So my, my mandate was pretty limited. I went and I met with the Bishop's Conference. I met with many people in Nicaragua. I met with the new president, um, Ortega, for twice and at some length. Now, I have maintained, and our conference has maintained, this basic position in regard to Central America, and specifically in this case, Nicaragua that the United States position ought to be one of aid in trying to affect some reality of human rights. We ought to recognize the intense suffering which is going on there, and therefore we ought to be in a position of supporting some kind of economic aid. But we have also took the position that we should not be involved in military aid that uh, the military aid which would be given uh, would be a definite intrusion into the internal affairs of countries. That's still my position. I still believe that that is true. My problem in Nicaragua was this, and this is arguable, and there are many, many people, my, my mail the last several weeks will attest to that. There are many people who don't agree with what, I, what I'm saying about this. I believe that the Sandinistas are trying to do something that no one has ever done. Now that doesn't mean they can't do it, but it's terribly risky. But they are trying to wed a Marxist Christian vision of society. No one historically has ever really put Marxism and Christianity together in a happy marriage. And I believe that that's the underlying problem and the underlying friction between the church in Nicaragua and the Sandinista government. My great hope is that the dialogue in that country, which had really broken down, that it will revive and that somehow there will be an accommodation because the Sandinistas have done very remarkable things. What they have done in the area of literacy, what they have done in the aid of distribution of food for the poor is really edifying. But there is a terribly radical problem there. And I think that I've identified the problem as that attempt to put together a Marxist, Leninist form of government and a Christian society. That's very hard to do.
question that's come from the audience. May we have your opinion <coughs> on the sanctuary movement? All right. Well, once again, there are a lot of people aren't going to, dis aren't going to agree with me here. And I, nobody wants to talk about uh, the mission of the church and the temporal order, eh? <laughs> I, uh, uh, we'll get back uh, I've taken a position, and I re I, this is from my heart, and also, I guess, maybe from my head. I absolutely sympathize with efforts which are being made to correct the legislation which is prejudicial against political refugees. I bleed when I think that we currently have legislation in hand which could drive a political refugee back to death, to torture, to very serious problems in the country from which that person came. I believe all of that firmly. It's my style, however, to believe that we work better within systems than outside of systems. And I believe that in the long pull, we affect more if we will work to change the legislation rather than to break the legislation. And I see sanctuary as a symbol and a valid one. It isn't my style. I am very sympathetic to the people who believe and practice sanctuary. I can't do it. It's not where my head is. It's not where my, it is where my heart is. It's not where my head is. Tell us more about the bishop's letter on economic justice. Uh, it's well, a very big letter, I realize. That's a big letter. That's, a, that's 150 pages. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh. Well, let me, let me just tell you what we're trying to do. We had done a uh, fairly uh, ambitious letter on communism four years ago. Even compared to other things that we write, that may be the greatest unread document of all time. <laughs> and, but we were serious about it. And when we, so the question came up, all right, you've treated of this economic system. Now, really, we should not be addressing a Russian kind of economic system. We're Americans. Why don't we address, apply our social principles to our own economic system, which all of us admire? And that's, that's the genesis of this. That's why we're doing it. What we've done is we've taken a series of social principles, and I suspect that there would be almost no one here who would disagree with the principles. I've been meeting with people on this, and almost no one disagrees with that. They would be principles which would be, which would be pretty common to all of our religious traditions. We've taken the biblical kind of setting applied the social principles of justice to those. Then where we're in, in trouble is we've applied the principles to the reality of the economic system. And we've made a whole lot of recommendations, some of which have merit, some of which don't. Uh, we're in the process now of wrestling with the first draft. We're approaching these areas in economics, unemployment or employment, food and land use, how you handle coalitions of government, education, other groups in society who must work together 
in order to find economic solutions to our problems. And um, one other, and I'm sorry I've forgotten that chapter. But th those are the areas in which we're primarily, I'm sorry, uh, world trade. Those are, the, those are the areas in which we're primarily interested. Now, we're going through a very serious effort right now to consult. In this diocese, we will have a series of town meetings around the 12 county area. We're asking people to come in and testify as to what they see as the strengths and weaknesses of the economy. What do you think ought to be corrected? Everybody agrees there's some corrections needed. It's not a perfect system, we all know that, but it's a good system. But we're asking people to do that. I'm meeting with a group of people, uh, really an excellent group. I've got a series of, I've got theologians, scripture people. I've got uh, geographers, sociologists, economists, um, some very, very, uh, some, some business people of, uh, who are CEOs of their own companies. And, uh, so I'm trying to get a whole mix of people who are going through, and we are, we're going through chapter by chapter, going through the pastoral, and they're helping me to, uh, to make the kinds of corrections, or at least the kinds of suggestions, which I will ultimately make to the committee. So that's what we're trying to, we're doing it because we feel that the economy affects people. It goes right back to what I've been trying to say. How people live is affected by the economy. There are people who live with very little dignity in this country. And why? And that's, that's a moral question. That's not just an economic question. So that's why we're involved in the, in the pastor. Certainly the whole church and the whole community salutes and, and is indebted to the Catholic Church for this struggle and Thank you. helping us to think it through. Thank you. The Catholic bishops <laughs> of the U.S. are reported to have begun preparing a pastoral letter on women, and there have been suggestions that it will be more controversial than the bishops' letters on war and peace and the one on the U.S. economy. Given the restrictions that Rome has on the role of women in the church, what can you bishops say that will satisfy both church women, or Catholic women, that is, and a pope who some regard as a male chauvinist? I didn't say that, pope. <laughs> The first part of that question I thoroughly agree with. That will be much more controversial and much more difficult than the other two pastorals. I buy that totally. What we're trying to do is help society, not just women. We're trying to help society define what is that appropriate role, a recognized role, of women in the church and in society. I don't think anybody that I know who would disagree that women have been uh, the victims of very, very serious injustice in the church, in society, in a whole variety of other ways. I don't know anybody who would deny that. We're trying to help define those injustices. We're trying to help to define ways in which those injustices can be met head on. We're trying also to help, I suppose, women uh, have confidence in that enormous role, enormously important role, which they play in society and in the church. Now, the latter part of the question is, is really the difficult question. There are many, many women, many Roman Catholic women, 
who feel that the symbol, at least, of injustice is the inability to be ordained. Now, there will be a frustration there because that will not be treated. And many women, it is church law, it is law which cannot be changed by our conference, and uh, there will be many, many women who will feel a real frustration because what has come to several of them to be a sign and symbol of the essential injustice cannot be dealt with. I understand that. I still think that a real contribution can be made. There will be a series of open hearings uh, around the country uh, this coming, now it's either this coming fall or, the, or, or next spring. Uh, I, I forgot. But at any rate, we will have in this diocese, we will have a, a series of open forums uh, around where we will try to hear women speak to their own role and to their, own to their own felt injustices. I think that can be a very important pastoral, but the questioner is correct. It is not going to satisfy. Uh, it is not going to satisfy the, the needs or perhaps the expectations of many, many women in this country. And I'm well aware of that. I still think it's worth doing. I think perhaps this question blends with something of what you've just been saying. What would you say to someone who has become somewhat disenchanted with Catholicism over the lack of change in the stands on the important issues of abortion, divorce, and the ordination of women? Well, on the question of abortion, uh, I, at least I would have no problem, I think, sitting down pretty much head to head and talking about that because I feel so deeply about that question. The question of divorce and remarriage is, is is a human tragedy for great, great numbers of people. And I believe sincerely that the Roman Catholic Church in the past 10 years, primarily because of some expansion in the procedural norms which are used in judging cases of annulment, that there is a good deal more, not only compassion, but there is a good deal more realism about what causes marriages to terminate. Our tribunals today, and our, by a tribunal for those of you who would not know, that's, that's the process or that's the place where the process for the judgment of the validity of marriages takes place. We have, we're very serious about that. In our diocese, in this diocese, we handle about 700 cases a year. That's a lot of cases. And it's a high priority with me people who, who have gone through that trauma of divorce uh, need not, should not have to sit for years and years uh, waiting for something to happen in that situation. So we're trying to give that as high a priority as we possibly can. Now, I've forgotten the third. Uh, it was the ordination of women. Yeah. Abortion and ordination of women. Well, ordination of women, I, I spoke to that. I, 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 it, is, it is long biblically established, deep in the tradition of the Roman Catholic Church. It is not, it is a difficult question. It is a question under study. 
But I would have to be very honest and say, I do not see in my lifetime a change in that legislation. Change in legislation can happen because it is church law, but I do not see that change in legislation in my lifetime. Given the fact that this is a strongly Lutheran country and a strongly Roman Catholic country, perhaps this question fits well. During the past few years, there has been an ongoing dialogue between the Lutherans and the Roman Catholics. What is the current status of these dialogues? What outcome do you hope for? What outcome is likely? The dialogues between Lutheran and Roman Catholics has been going on for many, many, many years. Uh, two of the participants in that dialogue at the scholarship level are have been local. Warren Quanbeck, who, was, who is now deceased, who was a great Lutheran scholar, and Monsignor Jerome Quinn, who teaches scripture at the St. Paul Seminary, both were members of that of the International Dialogue Task Force of Lutherans and Roman Catholics. They have published five volumes. They've taken five different difficult areas, such things as Eucharist, ministry, authority, the last one, justification, perhaps the most difficult, as the Lutherans would know, the most difficult of the questions. And in those five, or in those areas, they have found not just an accommodation of language, they have found very, very major points of agreement. Now, the question at this point, and the dialogues now appear to be completed, that seems to be it. The question now is that the governing bodies of both the Lutheran Church and the Roman Catholic Church will take that work and translate it into some kind of practical, real, I suppose, resolution. Okay, we've got it. What do we do with it? For instance, what does this say about our capacity to worship together? If we have a fundamental agreement on the question of Eucharist, that says something to us. If we have a fundamental agreement on the question of primacy or of authority, that really says something that Lutherans and Roman Catholics have not been able to talk about in the past. If we, in justification, if we have at least uh, a kind of common understanding of the Lutheran position on justification and the Roman Catholic, what does that say about, uh, about possibly unity someday? All of those questions, I think, the, the scholarly work has been done and it's been superb. Now it seems to me it's a question of slowly and patiently, step by step, of trying to apply the, uh, the kind of, of real applications of what has been agreed upon to practice. Okay. Here's what I'm sure you love to deal with. What are your prospects of being named a cardinal? <laughs> <laughs> They're really high. <laughs> uh. Now, now don't, don't put any money on that. What would you do to increase the role of youth in being able to look forward to a life of commitment to social justice? One of the biggest questions I think that we have is church and society. 
Uh, I am absolutely convinced that unless we, and it's one of the things I think churches have really got to begin to work at, harder than we do, we've got to find a way to give young people a vision of hope, but also a vision of responsibility for the generation which really they are going to form. It's got, we've got to find a way to do that. On the pastoral on peace, uh, and I say this now because of myself, but I think it, it indicates something. But I spoke on almost every college campus in this state to young people, uh, to college-age people, and to faculties. And I believe very firmly that if we can give them a sense of their own responsibility, if we can give them a sense of hope, I believe that in their generation, they're going to really change public policy. They don't want any part, nor do you and I, but they want no part of having to live out their lives in the fear of a nuclear holocaust. They really are passionate about that. And I think that we, we've, got, we, we've got to help them form, not just their own consciences, but their own resolve to do something significant about several of these social issues as they become the movers and shakers of, of their day. And they're going to. So I, I, I think churches have got a big role to play here. Largely to give them hope. I believe that that's what they need. Could you comment on the differences which surfaced between Geraldine Ferraro and Archbishop O'Connor during the presidential election? Well, one is male and one female, I suppose. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Well, when I, I said uh, in my text that I, I really thought that there were excesses on both sides in uh, that kind of religion, political thing, I think there were. Uh, I wish that the partisan thing had never gotten into that, involved in that. Uh, I, I felt very badly about that. I, uh, I have a considerable amount of respect for Mrs. Ferraro. I think that she was a valiant candidate uh, I, didn't dis I didn't agree with her on some things, but I, a lot of things I agreed with her on. Uh, I, like, I like Archbishop O'Connor. Uh, I, I don't know if I would say this or not. Yeah, I guess I will. He, uh, I, th I think there's a temptation to give sidewalk interviews. And I think he gave too many sidewalk interviews. And uh, I think you always run into trouble when you do that. And, uh, He's a superb man, but, and, he, and he's very strong in the abortion question, and God love him, and so am I. But uh, I, wish, I wish the thing had never become partisan. I think it, and at least it was perceived as being partisan. And I think that always hurts. I think it weakens your position, it weakens your credibility in church whenever that happens. And so I regarded a lot of that as being pretty unfortunate. Thank you. Another question from the group. It sounds like the upcoming letter from the bishops on the economy goes beyond stating the themes of human dignity to supporting, or suggesting rather, public policy. Doesn't that amount to an overstatement of the church's role, thus subjecting the bishops justifiably to the criticism of the economists? Yeah, I, yeah it does. Um, well, I, I, let, me, let me try to level with you on that, though. I think you can go two ways. Um, 
And let me use an example. In the question of the war and peace pastoral, and I was much more deeply involved in that one because I was president of the conference at that time, but Cardinal Bernard and I went over to Rome and met with our counterparts from England, France, Belgium, Germany, Italy, I forgot, but it was pretty much Western Europe. Well, they were just horrified that we would make specific recommendations. They just couldn't imagine doing that with their own governments. They saw their role to be absolute. If they put out a pastoral, it had to be believed. Run no risks. That isn't the way we operate. And I don't think we'd get listened to. If we, in this economic pastoral, if we only put out a little pamphlet with principles, well, that'd get filed behind something, you know. Uh, it would go totally unread. Now, we're running a risk, and we, God knows we are. We're applying those principles to economic situations, and we're making recommendations. The principles Catholics have got to buy, because that's a part. But the rest of it, you can disagree with this completely. But we think it will be an engaging dialogue. We think we're making a contribution. And we think we've got something to say. And we think also that we've got enough expertise, and we're certainly doing enough consultation with experts, so that what we come out with, we think is probably going to be pretty good, ultimately. But any portion of the application sections can be disagreed with totally. And no one's going to lose his soul or her soul. That's okay. But we would, we would not be accomplishing anything if we didn't suggest some applications. I'm convinced of that. But the, the questioner is right. We do run some risks in doing that. And I, we know that. How do you feel about uh, how Vatican II is doing? Some feel that uh, you know, some of that momentum has been lost. Others feel that it's coming along. Do you have any perspective on that? Well, I, I have some strong feelings about it. Much of what Vatican II recommended by way of specifics has already been accomplished. And therefore, I suppose there's neither, there isn't quite the excitement that there may have been 10 years ago when, remember when we were changing altars around and communion rails and people were getting mad at one another about holy things. And, uh, that, that's all kind of gone now. But the spirit of Vatican II, I'm satisfied, is still there. That spirit of collegiality, for instance, in Vatican II, that spirit of, of being a people of God, a people walking together uh, in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, and hand in hand with sister and brother. Uh, that's, that's alive, that's coming. And we, that will not ever be perfected uh, because it, it is a pilgrimage. But that's coming along very well. And I think we're, I think the spirit of Vatican II is alive and well from my standpoint. Good. Mayor Fraser made an important statement about the homeless in his State of the City address yesterday and the hungry in our city. What is the church's role in solving these issues, homeless, hungry? Well, one of the people who most graphically is addressing that question is in this audience, Father Ed Flavin from St. Stephen's Parish in Minneapolis, which is one of the major shelters for the homeless. And I, I wish we could do more, but no way in conscience can we as church ignore our responsibility to the homeless and to the hungry? 
we have an absolute responsibility, not in charity, in justice, in justice to those people. So we've got to do everything we possibly can. And sometimes, I'll be, I'll be honest with you, but sometimes I wonder, uh, I'm very proud of the Catholics of this archdiocese, at this, I always am, but at this moment, in response to the, uh, the appeal on the Ethiopian Relief Fund, I sent out just the most modest little letter to our parishes and said, if you can do something, do it. As of yesterday, $307,000 our people had sent in. Well, that's, that's just remarkable. But you know, I'm afraid if I sent out the same kind of letter and talked about hunger, the homeless, here, I don't know if I'd get that kind of response. So I'm, I'm all for what we did for Ethiopia, but I hope we never lose our sensitivity to what is happening right here. So I think Mayor Fraser was right on. As we near the end of our hour together, let me just remind the radio audience that they have been listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum originating at Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis, and that our speaker, happily, has been the Most Reverend John R. Roach, Archbishop of the Archdiocese of St. Paul in Minneapolis. Let me quickly remind that the next forum will be February 21st with Leon Martel, The Future, Promise or Peril, and then we have a very special treat in store in March. March 21st, J.S. Bach's birthday. Our speaker will be Robert Shaw and his theme, Music and Worship, a tribute to Bach on his birthday. And interestingly enough, this hour will be broadcast live over the whole uh, public radio network that day. So it's going to be part of a, of a happy and significant celebration. Uh, in my study before coming down to sit and meet with all of you, Archbishop Roach says, my speech is going to be short so that there'll be plenty of time for questions. And I salute him for standing here and fielding every one of them honestly and forthrightly. And we're indebted to you, sir, for doing that. You spoke of the call of the church to be a voice of moral perspective in the political debate. You have been a voice of moral perspective standing before us today. And I wonder if you would, uh, as a last response, uh, uh, address this rather personal question. Tell us something of your personal history, and how did you decide to become a priest? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, that's a lovely question. Uh, I grew up 25 miles from here in Prior Lake. My dad was a businessman on the main street of Prior Lake for over 50 years. He's been dead now for many years. Uh, I have two sisters, one deceased. My mother is still alive, 91 years old, and lives in a nursing home in St. Paul. And uh, I had a family which was marvelously supportive but never pushy about a religious vocation. And I was, uh, felt that I would get all kinds of affirmation if I wanted to be, but uh, all kinds of affirmation if I wanted to do something else. And it was a very, I've had a very lovely life, lovely family. And, uh, went through local schools. Uh, went to Shakopee for high school. At that time, Prairie Lake didn't have a high school. You can imagine how long ago that was. And um, then went to uh, Nazareth Hall, the St. Paul Seminary. Did my graduate work at the University of Minnesota. Taught for 22 years at St. Thomas Academy. Well, I taught for some years, then I was headmaster for 17 years. And um, 
then uh, became uh, rector of the college seminary, then became a bishop and then an archbishop, and it's been a happy life. And I've never had to move much more than about 20 miles. It's been great. <laughs> I've enjoyed it thoroughly. Well, we're glad we, you moved to this precinct today Thank to you be very with much. us. Thank you. Thanks, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.